Lord, we give thanks for this, your word, and we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that this would, word would be a word of life unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the portion of the story of Jonah where Jonah has been swallowed by a big fish. And these are Jonah's words from that space. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shale I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? <clears throat> the waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bar closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from the life of the pit. O oh Lord my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 27, verses 33 to 44, and I will read that formal portion in just a bit, but I want us to consider really the full arc of Acts chapter 7, it is 27, it is such a significant chapter, uh, really, for Christians as a whole, it is towards the very end of the book of Acts we've been looking at all, so, all uh, fall long, and we've seen how the church has spread from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth, the, the Gentiles. And when we turn to Acts chapter 27, what we have is Paul. He is a prisoner. He is alongside a host of other prisoners. And they're being put onto a cargo ship, which is going to sail far across the Mediterranean to Italy. There, Paul will stand trial before Emperor Caesar about his faith and all the disturbances his faith has been causing around the empire. There's a man named Julius. He's a centurion. He's in charge of all of these prisoners, and fortunately has taken kindly to Paul, which will pay off a bit later in the story. And as the ship sets sail, what unfolds is really one of the most famous seafaring journeys in all of literature. And as Christians, we understand what unfolds too as, as something of a paradigm for the Christian life. What this pilgrim is all, is all about when we speak about following Jesus. Most of this journey, by the way, takes place on water. And as many of you know, the people of God for thousands of years considered water symbolic of all that is chaos and evil. It is no small thing, right, that Moses leads the people through part of the water. All that is chaotic, all that is evil. And so they launch out onto the waters. And if you read Acts chapter 27, it begins quite nicely. They catch a gentle south breeze. 
It is a pleasant breeze, leading them in just the right direction, at just the right pace. In fact, Luke writes, they thought they attained what they wanted. This is perfect. And perhaps you have. You've stepped out onto maybe the Christian journey or another endeavor, another decision. And in those first few steps, maybe a word of encouragement comes your way. A kind note. Someone takes care of a few of the details. And it just feels like there's this warm, beautiful breeze that is keeping things in this direction at this pace so well. They thought they'd obtained everything they wanted. Soon. In fact, on the very first day, a violent wind, a northeaster, grabs hold of the ship and starts driving the ship nearly out of control along the coastline. Immediately, everyone on board reaches for the lifeboat. They've got to get the lifeboat secure and broke down in time. Now, the hope at this point is still that plan A is going to work. The winds are going to die. We've got the ship, and everybody's on the ship, and all the things are on the ship, and we're going to make it to Italy, and all's going to be fine. But sometimes, right, sometimes certain winds rush into our lives and our realities with such force, so unexpectedly, so fearfully, that we realize, my gosh, I have got to get plan B tied down. Day two. The winds don't let up. The rains are pouring in. They realize there is a distinct possibility that the ship is going to sink. They start to throw the cargo over. All of the extra stuff. All of the stuff that when they got to Italy was going to be part of their profit. And therefore their livelihood and their family's livelihood. And of course the people in Italy are, are, are in need of all these different pieces of cargo. But at this point... Cargo's dead weight. It's in fact deadly weight. Day three. The storm only intensifies. The ship is now so battered that they start to throw over the tackle. So these are the ropes, the extra sails, the cables, and the pulleys that in, in normal times allow the sailors to control and maneuver the ship just so. And actually, the Greek word for the tackle is, is a broad word that, that even means furniture. And so, tables, chairs, beds. And, and some of our ancient manuscripts that we have for Acts 27 actually say that they threw over their tackle and their arms. And so the picture we have emerging on day three is that they're throwing over the pulleys and the levers of control. The tables and the chairs and the beds where they gave them at least some measure of repose and comfort and escape from time to time. And then their armaments, their, their security, just in case. Their control, their comfort, their security. And then we have this very sobering line in verse 20. Right after that. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging. Sailors guide their direction, their orientation, where they need to go, where they are by the sun and the stars. But the storm is such that it blankets the sun and the stars. They have no idea where they are. It is utterly disorienting. In 
And so verse 20 continues. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. There's a group of folks uh, who meet for Java and Jesus. At Elder Thompson's with me on Wednesday mornings, 7.45 a.m., we usually look at the scripture that's coming up for Sunday's service of worship. And I asked the group that was there this past Wednesday, what do you make of this verse 20? We finally gave up all hope of being saved. And one person said, well, they're, they're in the belly of the beast. Absolutely. Acts 27 is the New Testament version of the Jonah story. And this portion of the story is where Jonah is in the belly of the beast. You heard a reading of how Jonah cries out from that darkness. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains and I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. What is it to know this kind of darkness, to know something of this kind of loss? To be sure, there are people right now, this day in California, who are painfully and tragically living with this question. There are people around the world in different scenarios living with this question. Even if we perhaps have not known the force of a, of a hurricane or wildfire to take all or nearly all, certainly we have known perhaps seasons where certain storms from without or even within have had us let go of excess cargo or even necessary cargo. Future prospects, future jobs, future income, future plans. Or, or perhaps we have known storms from without or even storms from within hit and we have had to let go of some of the pulleys and cables and ropes that, that, that have given us a helpful measure of control and influence and direction. Or perhaps we have known seasons where the storm is such without or within that we really do not know where to go next or what to do with this situation or, or which direction to step. We are completely disoriented loss. And storms aside, even if we've known something of these storms, something of these questions on the void, storms aside, what do we make of the fact that in, in some sense Jesus speaks of this kind of loss as not just part of but even fundamental to the Christian faith? Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples, my followers. I hardly know what to do with everything you have. That is so much. That is too much. But it seems to point out that at some essential level, Jesus calls for all in which we might find security or comfort or control outside of Jesus as that wishes to be lost. That we might eventually find our singular hope and comfort in life and death to be Jesus. Victor Frankl, he survived the Nazi concentration camp and then went on to write one of the most uh, well-known books of the 20th century 
Man's Search for Meaning, a short book chock full of deep and wise wisdom born of what is discovered in the depths of darkness. At one point he writes, when we're no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. When life has thrown us in such a way that really we are empty of any ability to make a difference, change this, do this, it may just be the heart of darkness itself, and there is something to, of a real captivity in that, but he also wants to name, surprisingly, an opportunity. We are challenged to change ourselves. We are challenged with the opportunity to turn, to know a conversion. To know a transformation. In fact, what he's getting at is not so far away from what Jesus speaks of when he talks about losing our life that we might find our life. And so they go along in this space of darkness for a number of days. And eventually the Apostle Paul stands up. And he has a word from the Lord. Keep up your courage. Not a single life will be lost. Only this ship will be destroyed. An angel of the Lord came to me last night and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. You, you must make it to Italy. And God has graciously, graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul does not stand up with a miracle that gets them out right away. Does not stand up and point to a bigger, better boat that they can all jump onto. Doesn't stand up and say, I have a way to see the sun and the stars and I can give us some guidance. There is no miraculous escape or deliverance or guidance. It is a living word from the living God who is bigger than the water. And I suspect that may be really at the heart of why we gather from week to week in worship. We gather to praise God, to give thanks, to, to enjoy the gift of this communion, this fellowship. But at a fundamental level, amidst the storms without and the storms within, that we all navigate some at the very same time, I think there is a longing and a hunger for a living word from the living God who is bigger than the water. Paul's word, it really it echoes a word that's not so different that God once gives to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 43. When, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you, for I am the Lord your God. Just after Paul offers a word from the Lord, there's a brief scene where the, the storm settles to at least a degree that some of the sailors, they, they try to escape with the lifeboat, and they're called out for it, they're caught, they're brought back, everyone stays on the ship, and the sailor decides to, the, the captain decides to cut the lifeboat from the ship. And so as plan B floats away, we arrive at the formal reading of our New Testament passage for today, Acts chapter 27, verses 33 to 44. Just before God, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he 
Since he's gone without food, you haven't eaten anything to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When the daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. The word of the Lord. Constant suspense and hunger is how you heard Paul characterize all of that journey up to that moment. And he addresses both of them in one singular act. He takes bread, and after giving thanks to God, he breaks it and gives it. It is the same wording as we find in Luke chapter 23 with Jesus at the Last Supper. We gather in worship to know the word of Jesus and receive the meal of Jesus. Word and sacrament, these really are what we name as Christians to be our most fundamental, basic, essential, joyful, necessary nourishments above all else. In fact, if if you were to look at the arc of Acts 27, this incredible journey, this terrifying journey, filled with peril and loss and things being thrown overboard. At the center of the narrative really are two anchors that hold. And it is the word of Jesus and the sacrament of Jesus. These prove to be the anchors on the sea. We read that all 276 are encouraged in their eating. And I don't think it's any mistake that it's right after they have eaten that they, for the first time, see land. They they see a bay and and a beach. Something about communing with the living God gives them a fresh vision. And so they they hoist the one sail they have left. They cut the few anchors they have left and, and they head for land. And wouldn't you know it, just when you think you're almost there, one more thing, two more things actually. The ship, it, it, it wrecks, it, it bursts into a sandbar and then starts getting pounded by waves and it gets splintered and shattered into planks and, and wood. And while that's happening, apparently some of the soldiers want to go ahead and kill all of the prisoners, including Paul. And this is where our friend Julius steps in and says, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And then all who can swim do. They swim to the shore. And those who can't, well, the ship has now made a bunch of planks. Get to the shore that way. 
And it's striking that the thing that was so essential for so long, the thing that guarded and protected them in a most essential way that whole journey, the thing that was in many ways emblematic of the entire journey, at the very end, it too is destroyed. Johann Spanberg was a German reformer of the early, mid-1500s. And he wrote a sermon on Acts 27 where he saw and understood the ship as Christendom itself. All of our structures and edifices, all of our polity and governance, all of our doctrine and order, all of these beautiful, wonderful, and actually quite necessary pieces. And he said, what if, what if they crashed? broke apart. Would that, wouldn't that be devastating? Or, or would that be finally the moment when the church knows a full conversion, wherein truly it is Jesus and only Jesus, and singularly Jesus, who is our only hope in life and in death. What if even the ship? They all reach land. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground indeed proved sinking sand. The truth is, as much as any one of us, myself included, would like to live this life sort of one gentle breeze to the next, the truth is, the life of following Jesus is a life lived on the water primarily. It is a life of slowly, surely, sometimes abruptly discovering that those who try to save their life, hold their life, keep their life just so, will lose their life. But those who lose their life for my sake, those who surely and slowly and sometimes abruptly learn to let go for my sake, they will find life. It is a journey really of of a dying unto a rising. A growing and learning that there is this beautiful space wherein truly the word of Jesus and the meal of Jesus, which is to say Jesus himself, becomes the singular and most joyful and most needful substance of all. It's a journey where we had all these things we really loved and appreciated and needed and thought we would always appreciate love and need and couldn't imagine going without, but honestly, it's fine. Because once you make it to that beach, that light, it just pales in comparison. Let us pray. God, we thanks that you are faithful amid the waters. We are weak, you are strong. And so slowly and surely, but, but certainly surely, Lead us faithfully in and through and amid the waters that we might know the singular hope and joy of you yourself and that your light there.